0: How our threatscape will look in the next three to five years. And that's really an unknown space because AI is emerging rapidly. We've got Chat GPT. We're seeing how powerful that
1: tool is and how like useful that tool is. I think gamification is powerful and it should start from the general user training and then specialize and work up to specific training, like well training for executives or uh, you know, etc.
2: And even when something looks legit, you really have to hover over the, the uh, email address because look, I can send an email under my email account and I can change the name of who it's from and it'll look legit. I'll have all of the branding. I'll have all the stuff. Click on this magic link right here and it's going to take you wherever it is that I want you to do. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to without without even thinking about it, because you know what? I know, like, and trust PayPal. I'm going to click on that PayPal link and I'm going to go enter my credentials and I'm going to log in. Welcome to the Top Cyber Pro Podcast, the show where we bring experts in the cybersecurity industry to share their valuable knowledge, experience, tips, tools, techniques, and resources to help you become a Top Cyber Pro. And now, here's your host for this episode, Terry Thompson. Terry Thompson. The future of education has changed forever, and if you want to enter the field of cybersecurity, you must embrace the different technologies that are out there in order to make it happen. And today, we have two very special guests. We have Jim West, the CEO and founder of Top Cyber Pro at topcyberpro.com, and we have Jack Scott, We're going to dive into the future of education and how you must embrace that and the different technologies if you want to enter cybersecurity. Welcome to the show, Jim West and Jack Scott. How are you doing? Hey, Terry. Happy to be here.
1: Awesome. And glad to have you here, Jack.
2: Happy to be here. Thanks, Jim. 100%. So look, over the last like three years, we've seen this shift in technology, we've seen this shift within the world. And the future of education has changed. I remember my kids, you know, when we first said, you're all going home, we're going to be online, you're going to have to learn how to use Zoom, you're going to have to learn how to use this, you're gonna have to learn how to do that. And oh, my God, it was overwhelming. The average person gets overwhelmed by technology when it comes to their own learning. And I truly believe that if If you want to get into any industry, any field, you must take ownership in the development of your knowledge, your skills, and your experience. Let's dive into that, Jax. If you could make any recommendations for someone trying to get into the cybersecurity field, they first and foremost, they must embrace technology and self-education, self-training. How would you mentor somebody to... Take an interest in that, because I know me, I I just I still struggle with it. It's like, oh, my God, I don't want to take college. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to do this. How would you mentor someone to use the technology that's available to educate themselves to enter the cybersecurity industry?
0: Well, if we're talking about individuals that are fairly new within this space, the first thing that needs to be identified is what, what is their personality type? Maybe take a personality test. I'm big on that to figure out what do you like to do? You just said it. Maybe you don't like to go to college. Maybe you're not big on certification. So how do we gamify the training platform for them to be able to go, oh my God, this is what I want to do. And a way of doing that could be capture the flags or like hack the box, for example.
2: Yeah, I love that. Jim, any any ideas that that you've experienced on uh, educating or self-education?
1: You know, you'll hear a lot of people out there that'll comment like, you know, hey, go to YouTube, you know, basically our big YouTube university that's out there, Mm -hmm. you know, and they'll just kind of generally point people in a direction. But, you know, YouTube, as great as YouTube is for information sharing, just like uh, back in the 80s and 90s, techno music, right? Techno music had a lot of music out there, but only a little bit of it was really good or quality music. And the same thing goes with videos and cybersecurity information on YouTube. There's a lot of information out there, but some is better than others. So I think what people get disheartened by is when they're told, well, just go that way. Go to YouTube University. And they go to YouTube, and they're just like, well, you know, how to get started in cybersecurity? And there's 100-plus videos on it, and, and they're still lost. And a lot of people, without having, you know, that the key word you said earlier is that mentorship. Having a face, a human being that they can trust and see their career as an example, as I call the career roadmap. That hey, I see this person. Uh, I could, I could do what this person did. It did, and I think that comes with humanizing our professionals. Sharing their story of how they got started, I think, is key because a lot of people that were sitting at home during COVID, they they lost maybe lost their jobs and found themselves forced to transition to something. And they see in the news, they, they get the same news we do. You know, there's a cybersecurity skills gap. There's, in, you know, over a hundred thousand jobs open right now, and people are like, "Well, I'm ready to work. Show me the way and lead me to it, and I'll work." And and there's so much talented, you know, people out there that have the capacity to do great things in cyber. But through there's so many, we could we could break, break apart this. There's a lot of barriers to entry. But ultimately, what it starts with is gaining knowledge and getting educated. And I, I could see anyone just going to YouTube feeling lost. And so when you have folks like Jax and others that are out there with podcasts, with blogs and websites trying to be that beacon of light to say, hey, come here. I can be your mentor and your resource to guide you towards your career path.
2: I love that, you know, and and it reminds me that different people learn different things differently, and I truly believe that whenever you present an opportunity for people to learn exactly where they are or how they learn, more importantly, how they learn, but I think it goes deeper than that, why they want to learn, and I think that when you can dive deep into why somebody wants to learn, you can really get into that. Gamification, I truly believe, is an opportunity out there within the education world because it really hits all of the all of the ways in which people learn, and it makes it fun as well, too. And I believe that whenever you make it fun, people feel like they're not really learning, they're playing. And when you can create play out of learning, I truly believe that it really takes it to that next level. So tell me, is there an opportunity within learning that is not being taken advantage of right now?
0: Mm, I think I'm going to pass this one to Jim really quick.
1: (laughs) So I think I think the opportunity is in the things that we see that are talked about the most common organizations, right? For example, phishing campaigns. The traditional is to send out some emails about it, some you know tips and tricks about it, or put up a poster in the break rooms. And for some companies, they even pay for a company to come in and launch an actual phishing campaign. Mm-hmm. And the problem I have with that is that. You know, what is the, the ownership? You know, how do you make everyone from the help desk person to the front desk receptionist all the way to the C-suite? How do you get all of their involvement? Running a live action phishing campaign is kind of like the slap on the hand. Like, oh, you did a bad thing. Here's some training or here's some tips and tricks. Well, now they feel like that they that they did something wrong and now they're turned off from being an active participant in the security program. So I believe gamification is the trick where you can make them feel like they're all all in, in this game together, kind of like how capture the flag uh, competitions work, where people are joining together to take down and to solve the problem or to, you know, to break in or whatever the the mission is for the, the flag capture. But I think you have to figure out how do you do that with a phishing campaign, where you can actually have people when they do identify it, reward that, and even if don't, make sure your language is very clear that it's not a punitive measure. It's it's okay. Hey, let's just take this opportunity to reflect what we could do better next time. And do it. I I think gamification is powerful and it should start from the general user training and then specialize and work up to specific training like well training for executives or, uh, you know, et cetera.
2: Yeah, there's a huge opportunity for training right now. And and it's one of those things like I'll even use I'll even use my organization without naming the organization. You know, we have this annual training requirement. We mm-hmm. have an HR is usually the one that pushes this out. But I truly believe that the IT department should be the one pushing it out, not the HR department, because HR department is going to check the block with a simple PowerPoint. Everybody mm-hmm. watch this, print your name on a certificate. There you go. We're good for annual training requirements. But Jim, I loved what you did one time because you put on a truly phenomenal training event one time where the first thing you had people do is is sign an AUP the the access user <laughs> agreement and it was one of those things to where you had some randomly put Easter eggs within this within this agree user agreement that people signed and they and throughout the event you called people up on the stage and say would so and so come up to the stage would so and so come up to the stage and so and so come up to the stage. You had people singing karaoke, clucking like a chicken, dancing the dancing a dance because they agreed to it within the user agreements. Like you agreed, you signed. And in that
1: case, Terry, you know that brings a really fond memory up. I I think we even had a lieutenant colonel on on stage (laughs) too, dancing. Um, But in that event, it wasn't to make people feel bad. It was all in good fun. But the the goal of it was is to redefine print. You know, when it comes to things like user privacy, and we see it with mobile applications, is probably the biggest culprit. is we, we need the app, oh, this is an app, we click, we wanna just run it, run it, run it. But then when we're clicking, we're not realizing all those legalese and things that so we're accepting, hey, we're given an access to our microphone, our camera, our contacts list, our our storage on our phone we're giving it carte blanche access uh, to everything that's on our phone and we don't realize it and it's just it could be just a flashlight app it's only function is to turn the light on but yet why does it need my microphone and my you know no one questions these things and that's what it was made made to do was help people really think about what they're signing because they're just going through the motions of yeah sure sign i approve i agree and that's what it was to do is to bring the light up, be conscious of what you're agreeing to, what you're enabling to have happen on your device. Cause our mobile phones in that particular situation, mobile phones are a great extension of who we are.
2: And I want to shift over to Jacks on this one right here. Mm-hmm. How do you bridge the gap or how do you hold people accountable to just not go through the motions? In other words, Um, you know, so people, so it's taken more seriously because every year it's an annual training requirement. It's like, you have to do this. You must do this. We need to do this as a company. How do you shift the responsibility on that or make people more accountable, more responsible for, um, for this annual training requirement?
0: yeah, I think it's more than just making them accountable or responsible because that's going to be something really hard to do when they're going to be clicking through a screen. I we have annual training at my company as well, and it's extremely boring. I'll be very honest and it is. it's very dry, it's very boring. And so it's very hard to enforce and make people accountable when the content is so dry. So going back to like gamification, for example, a way that I see, and I know there is actually a production company that is doing this right now, is they're developing these 15 to 20 minute Hollywood style videos that go through and explain what is phishing, but not only what is phishing, but what happens to an organization when the individual actually clicks on that phishing email, what could possibly, what are the ramifications when you click on that email and it impacts the overall network. And I think having them understand the overall impacts and actually seeing it, will help them to better understand, okay, this training is really important and why we do it annually. We get it because we work in the technology space. But these individuals that work in HR or they work within the sales departments, they don't work in our space. They don't care. They don't worry about password managers. They w- reuse the same password over and over again. So it's really figuring out how do we make this almost entertaining where they're going to watch and be like, oh my gosh, that really would happen like this. This isn't just like what I see in the movies. And and I also think another technique too is phishing, like the phishing test. I think that was a big, when I went to a fintech, I got a phishing email once. I had literally only been there for five days and this email came in and it looked legit. And I was like, well, that's weird. They're like, please see this we've done, because you do a ton of background checks working in a fintech. So they sent it to me and it was very social engineered. Hey, we checked your background. Here's some information. Can you review this data and make sure we have an accurate assessment, blah, blah, blah and I clicked on it, it was the worst feeling ever. This was years ago and it popped up and it was like, you have just failed the phishing exam, blah, blah, blah. Wow. I was like, and I'm cyber. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. But I will tell you that day, I have never ever gotten caught on a phishing email ever again because I always double check because we then had a follow on education with that. And it was where this woman led the class And it wasn't a punishment, she did it as a collective, but she actually showed you, how do you check for a phishing email? You hover over the email, you do this, you hover over the link, you you check certain things. And it helped me immensely, even though I worked in the cybersecurity space. So I think there's a lot of things, but I think the biggest thing is we've got to get away from the current way we're doing training. It's not effective, it's not gonna work, and we've gotta get more into the gamification and entertainment. So I think those Hollywood short clips are like, amazing. Cause you're, you're, I've watched one of those clips she has from uh night productions. It's amazing. It is amazing. You'll, you will like literally get sucked into it.
2: I love it. I'm going to have to definitely, definitely take a look at some of that right there, but man, I I've been pwned as well too. So I know exactly what it's like. terrible. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I'm, I still to this day get like a wide variety and I've changed emails, but y- you hit on something great there. And even when something looks legit, you really have to hover over the, the uh, email address because look, I can send an email under my email account and I can change the name of who it's from and it'll look legit. I'll have all of the branding. i have all this stuff click on this magic link right here and it's going to take you wherever it is that i want you to do and if you're not paying attention you're going to without without even thinking about it because you know what I know like and trust PayPal I'm going to click on that PayPal link and I'm going to go enter my credentials and I'm going to log in well what you don't know is is that well you've just been hacked you've just been you know you just gave access and gave information to somebody out there but here's what I want to know I want to dive into the difference between usability and user experience because when you work for a company you work for an organization And it's frustrating as a contractor, for example, and you work on a government network. There's things we just cannot do because we're on a government network. It's too secure, too patched, too this, too everything. How do you differentiate between usability and user experience? Oh, that
0: is a very like... You have It's a very sensitive area because when I worked at the bank, I will tell you, my computer was more secure than any computer I'd ever had in the military. And because there's a lot of financial, there's a lot of data, there's an insider threat is a big threat within financial institutions, I come to find out, didn't realize it. And so if I did not have my... Uh, UB key in there and all, like it was multi, multi, multi-factor authentication to get into my system. It was literally a paperweight. I could not do anything on that computer. And so there were some areas, there were some times where it was frustrating. And that was the first time in my career that I started realizing, oh, that's why users start to circumvent security protocols because it's starting to impede my day-to-day operations. So there's a finesse to it. And I think that it's not one solution. You've got to look at it holistically. I think one of the steps is doing least privilege, because I think that's a great way of reducing those privileges in case a threat actor gets in, say for me if they get. and I have a least privilege, they're only going to be able to move so far within the network. I also think segmentation is going to be key. Uh, And I also think there are technologies and I know of technologies that will actually take your entire network and remove it off of the internet, put it into a secure encrypted bubble. And so I can still have my freedom to move about and do what I need to do because I'm in my own secured bubble and that's not the technical term, but that's what we're using. And if I was to click on a phishing email, only my bubble is impacted. None of the other entire network is touched. I will go offline. My machine will shut down. And so I think there's technologies that are out there now that will help organizations be more secure without inhibiting their users from being effective within their day-to-day operations.
2: Mm -hmm. I, I love that. Jim, over to you. What are your thoughts?
1: So uh, I, you know I'll start with the basic principles you know Jacks already mentioned least privilege um, you know also rights use limitation uh, segmentation big a lot of these are hallmarks of what the latest greatest fad of zero trust architecture that you know companies like Microsoft and uh, you know uh, AWS is leading through their cloud implementations you know zero trust architecture is basically IDAM uh, 2, 2.0 in, in a nutshell with a little bit more encryption um, you know she mentioned you know having an encryption solution there are solutions out there like one of them, stealth by Unisys, uh, that does a real good job at one layer encrypting pretty much everything. You have other systems out there that'll encrypt all the way down to the DLL and executable binary level, which those are pretty effective at what they do. But um, at the end of the day, you got to stick to basics, right? You got to go old school. You got to first start with your data flows and, and your privileges and rights, and make sure you assign the appropriate amount. That never goes away. You can have all the, you can spend all the money in the world on technologies. But it's, it's kind of like you could have a million dollar car, but it's about also comes down to the driver in the car. And so you got to keep your, your principles in check regarding those rights and permissions so that if that million dollars or that very expensive technology fails you, you still have limited um, impact to your organization or limited mobility for lateral movement, et cetera.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that. And, you know, and it reminds me of like different vulnerabilities and and response. So we we, we had this emergency response system where whenever an incident happens, you know, you, you basically you follow this protocol, but it really kind of leads me down to different types of vulnerabilities. Are there any vulnerabilities that are in that are either more important, less important? And how do you prioritize vulnerabilities whenever there's an attack?
0: So that'll be based on the organization, how they want to prioritize. It's all based on what they're what is prioritization for them. For example, I have a client right now that had a a, a score, a vulnerability score within their network of like a 9.5 and it's a Microsoft vulnerability. It's a federal client most federal clients use Microsoft products. However, they did not see that as a priority because it was only on say 110 machines, host machines, and they have over a thousand machines. So they didn't see that as a a requirement because something also to consider when you're looking at vulnerabilities is a lot of times you're looking at those vulnerabilities, there's going to be a patch requirement. So depending on the intricacies of those networks, they don't want to patch that vulnerability because maybe there's certain softwares, there's certain system, there's certain um there's certain things that are running with on on that machine that if that if you patch that vulnerability, it's gonna knock everything off. And the APIs may not be able to communicate with another API. So there's a ton of considerations in that space. And it's not an easy answer, but the best advice I would say is you've got to have a risk register, you've got to understand your environment, and then you've got to work with your team. If you're a consultant like myself, you've got to work with your client and you've got to know what is your risk appetite and what is a priority to to you? And what is the most important thing to keep protected? What are your most critical assets or your crown jewels? And then you base that off of the prioritizations.
2: Jim, any additional thoughts?
1: Yeah, she hit the the nail on the head about the crown jewels. You know, there's five defense in-depth frameworks and one of them being the information centric one, which focuses on the crown jewels of an organization. And she also is absolutely right about the type of organization. You know, a newspaper organization, a news organization has different uh, priorities on security as opposed to a financial institution or a defense institution or the type of federal institution. So every business will have the things that matter to them or the likeliness of attack when you do a basic, you know, risk uh, risk matrix um, some of the things i wanted to add to what she was saying though is that you know what the what the situation from wanting to patch something you know microsoft puts out a patch so there's a ter- there's a term called race condition right D- day one of a patch being released and then when you actually can't employ it most businesses uh, a lot of businesses don't have the capacity for doing sandboxing or doing like, you know, testing in a test environment first. And even if they did, there's amount of time and, and the, the patch it test it thoroughly before you roll out into production. And, you know, that is a window of time per that race condition where you could be attacked through that vector. But what I will offer people that are, you know, well, what do we do? You know, if we have we have a test environment, but it usually takes us, you know, 30, 28 to 45 days to test and, and put in production at best, what do we do in that window if we're going to be attacked or owned? And what I advise people to do is there, there's a great framework that's created by MITRE called the miter Attack Framework. And every cybersecurity professional that's working with any capacity into incident handling, incident response, or even just, you know, crossing lanes over to a, a SOC environment, I would say you should be at least fundamentally aware of what it is and what it can do. And it's basically a navigator. It's free for the public. Any company and business could use it, but it kind of lets you know due to certain conditions or vulnerabilities that are correlated in CVEs, how they can be mapped to techniques and tactics that attackers will use to infiltrate your network. And I would recommend anyone does a site called Attack IQ, which they have a wonderful academy. It's free to register and you've got several learning paths to go through. Phenomenal information that's free currently. Uh, again, for any cybersecurity professional that wants to have a better understanding of how the vulnerabilities that they're seeing in their vulnerability reports may correlate into techniques and tactics that they should be looking for, it, I think it's a it's a great perspective uh, and visualization of that that they didn't have before. And you know, kudos to MITRE as an organization for making that publicly available.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm reminded of exemptions. So, so as I heard both of you speak, it reminded me of exemptions. I remember being a service desk, you know, being in charge of a service desk and going out and doing service calls and so on. And we used to telnet into machines and do all these different things. Well, what, what I what I discovered is is that we were actually violating exemptions, and I had. I actually had one one of my one of my employees got three cross-domain violations in one day because he telnetted into machines that had exemptions. So, Jax, when I heard you speaking about you know different things, it reminded me of exemptions because we all have different exemptions. We all have different wants, needs, desires, things that we have on our machines. It you know, and it goes back into the user user usability. Uh, versus user experience kind of a question when I'm talking about exemptions. But do you really believe that within the networks that we can really be too secure?
0: Mm. No, I don't. It depends. That's always the word. It depends. I don't think we can be too secure. And I speak from that from the perspective of looking at the organizations that I work with and my clients because a lot of them are at going back to like the using the cybersecurity uh, framework, the CSF, NIST, CSF framework, baseline. A lot of these organizations, the the score ranges from zero to five. And I've noticed that most of these organizations are between a one and a two. I do not believe that a lot of them are going to get to optimized as a five, because that's going to take a lot of technology, a lot of resources, and resources take money, funding. So it's gonna be hard for us to be at that level of secure. Um, also, the other factor that you have to consider, and we were just talking about it, vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities happen because technology changes, it emerges, so do the adversaries. The adversaries, TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures change, which create vulnerabilities. So we're we're it's ever-changing. We're That's why we call it the cat and mouse game. And I think one of the largest factors we're gonna see in the coming years is disruptive technology, IoT devices. As those continue to come out, as we continue to put more devices on the network, that's gonna cause more vulnerabilities, that's gonna raise our risk. So we can never be, I don't think we're ever gonna re- reach that level five, that optimal, but that's what we should strive to achieve,
2: in my opinion. Awesome. Jim, any additional thoughts on that?
1: So, you know, we talk about the, the you know, great mention of cybersecurity framework by NIST and, you know, RMF for DOD and, and other um, security management frameworks. The, the issue is when you think about like regulations and policies and these frameworks uh, that you build upon, uh, the thing that people need to remember, and this I'm gonna say something probably profound to some people, these regulations and policies are the minimum level of security. It is the minimum baseline level of security. What you decide to do extra and above that, great for you. And, and so a lot of organizations you mentioned, you know, that will struggle getting to a level one, two, and in some cases may be good and have a three, but it's gonna take additional things to get to the higher levels. And that's what we, I I like to term it risk negotiation. It's a daily risk negotiation. We want security to be as transparent to the user experience as possible where they don't even know that it's there. And it's not like, you know, single sign-on is a technology we developed to not have to log in 20 times a day, right? Mm -hmm. So we try to create these, these functions and features to make it easier for the user but the problem we have is like, just like with software, whenever a software gets a new feature added, that's more lines of code. And sometimes you add that line, it breaks another thing, it creates another opening and, and, and loophole. So the continuous uh, program development, which is what Microsoft does when it continuously releases updates and patches, those updates to software are not just for security, it's also adding different functionality and features or tweaking functionality and features that was buggy before. But it's just, it's just like that. It's like as soon as, you know, like the whack-a-mole, as soon as you, Patch the one thing another one pops up and you're having to do this game. And that's really what, when it comes down to vulnerability management. But, you know, technology can do so much for organizations. And ultimately, I I always like to tell people, I always start with basics. Look at the principles, security principles first, and how are you enforcing these first? How are your policies supporting those principles? And then down to your SOPs, and how are you continuously improving that to do what you can to reuse, repurpose, and um, reorganize how you position your security. And the last statement, I'll make on that is Sun Tzu and Art of War says to defend on all sides is to be weak on all sides. So again, trying to achieve a five-five five five on all the CSF scores, right? You're going to end up hampering your ability to operate and share information with your business partners, uh, your, your your associates and customers. So you'll get to a point where you could be so secure that, yeah, you could be secure. But then you're not going to be effective in business. And so that's definitely a delicate balancing act to do. And I call it risk negotiation. But that's why professionals like Jax, myself and others, that's what we have to do every day for the businesses and organizations we support. And
2: as a general user, you know, I'm often thinking about privacy, data protection. And every time I look in the news, I always see so-and-so is hacked, so-and-so data leak, privacy leak, so on and so forth. And and as a user, that gets quite frustrating because every time that I sign up for something new, it's like you have to enter your name, your social security number, your house, you have all this PII, all these things that could just be linked right back to you. You're making yourself vulnerable. And it drives me crazy that organizations, do you really need to know? exactly all of this information, how do we, how do we move forward or how do we mitigate the risk of privacy and data protection from an organizational standpoint moving forward? Because it's a problem. And I think that if organizations would just stop needing information that they just don't need, you know, data, they don't need all this stuff. How do we mitigate that risk moving forward into the future? And what would be your recommendation from a consultant standpoint to, to not have have that, not require that or not need that because it's not necessary. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, there's two sides of that. So I'm going to talk organizational and then I'm going to talk the user taking back their power on that. So the organizational side, and we've already touched on these, you're going back to Uh, that layered approach to security. So when you have that sensitive PIA information or PHA information, health information, whatever the data is that you're wanting to pull, it needs to be segmented, it needs to be encrypted, there needs to be least privilege added to it, like all of these layers of protection to keep it segregated. That way, if an adversary does breach, due to a say a phishing attack into an into the network they're not able they they may be able to move laterally but they can't get into that information because it's hyper secure through different layers of encryption that's what the organization can do I do agree they ask for too much information. So it goes back to how do we, the users take back our power so that the next piece of this is what I personally do. And I always recommend this. And I tell people to do this is create a Google number. I have a Google number. That's the number that I put out. It's it's tied to an unattributed email. I also have a UPS address. The UPS address is what I put on everything. I don't put my home address. The UPS address is not even attributed to me as either. So. If you want to go and try to find me, then you're going to go to a UPS address that's in a completely different zip code than where I live as well. And then the other thing I do is I use a tool called Delete Me and it goes and it scrolls through the internet and it deletes my information on the internet. So you're not able to track me or get, because as we know, and the individuals on here, OSINT, open source intelligence is a real thing. And having a cell phone number you can get so much information off of a cell phone number it's it's crazy so those are the big things that i do for users to be able to take it back take back our power because organizations they're going to ask for your data so how do we protect ourselves mm-hmm.
2: Jack, that was a phenomenal answer, by the way. I just, I just want you to know that. Oh my goodness. You gave me a couple of things to think about because oftentimes I just, oh yeah, sure. First name, last name, social security number, phone number, address. Without even, I think we've been conditioned. Um, To do those types of things, and we're so used to it that the average person just doesn't think about. Oh my goodness, what I put out on the internet, it lives forever. It's out there, and it's hard to really, you know, you mentioned the tool Delete Me. It's hard to get rid of some of these things. Like once you've left that trail, once you've left those breadcrumbs, and all it takes is just, you know, an adversary or, or you know a bad threat actor to really kind of dig into things like your social media, your this, who, where have you logged in at? Have you been pwned or not? You know, it's all these different things kind of play in and it's one by one, bit by bit, piece by piece. And that's what makes you vulnerable. It's not like the one thing it's the collective that makes you vulnerable. And I truly believe that Jim, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, uh, so as a privacy expert, I got a lot of opinions. So I'll start with the, the, the first piece is that, When it comes to privacy, you know, social media is the biggest um, farmland for for people to gather a profile on you. You know, I I travel frequently, I have a YouTube channel as well. Um, I have a lot of social media online presence. So, uh, and then, you know, one of my previous jobs in my career in cybersecurity, I was a program manager where my number, my cell phone number was listed on an NSA public facing website. Mm -hmm. And because it was on an NSA public facing website, I got calls and messages and attempts on my phone from everywhere in the world. Now, granted, I was using a secure edition of a phone uh, per their CSC commercial solutions for classified program, but still I'm getting calls from China, Taiwan, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, just everywhere in the Southwest Asia region and to include Russia and China. Um, so uh, I, I know firsthand what it's like to be targeted um but in regards to the information you volunteered the internet like what you post you know it's been there's articles out there about how don't post your vacation pictures while you're on vacation because that lets people know hey where do they live I'm gonna go rob their house gets robbed and or uh there was the uh, electrical grid that posted their information their usage reports online and hackers were able to look at it to see where people's electricity usage dipped in certain neighborhoods and they knew that the people were out out of town or not in the house and they would go target those houses so again information being made publicly available or being breached and and being made available on the dark web and other resources is is a danger to the average citizen. But the last piece I'll give, because back during the Ed Snowden issue, and again, I'm not going to go into the politics or the the ethics of what he did, but one of the things he revealed to the world was that the eavesdropping by government organizations, et cetera, on the masses. Some people protested. You had the typical protesters in front of the White House and in other cities around the world that were protesting this. But the general population kind of, eh, meh, they didn't care. It didn't, if if I'm not doing it, the statement is, is, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, so what do I care? So this is what I retort to people that have that sentiment of what do I care, right? You know, most people, when you have a house, you have a privacy fence because you don't want your neighbors looking in your backyard at all times easily. You put blinds and curtains on your windows because again, You don't want people looking into your your living room, into your bedrooms. You shut the door when you're in the bathroom. These are privacy measures that matter to us. What people haven't done that correlation is from our physical world that we want a degree of privacy when we're in our home or in our car. We put tinted windows in our car, you know, and in our office space, we like to shut a door when we want privacy. They haven't extended that out into their digital world. They don't realize how much they're volunteering and when we talk about alexa android devices listening devices our phones are listening all the time that's why we can go okay google you know route me to this uh, doctor's appointment or hey google or alexa set a timer for this or put this on my grocery list because it's constantly listening and then we question well i was just talking about buying cat food and now my social media feeds are all filled with ads for cat food most people are kind of aware of this and they joke to a degree about it but they don't understand the dangers of this that ultimately a profile could be built upon you and so the example that I'll give people and I'll try to wrap it up quickly is let's say you go to a particular Starbucks every day of the week. That's part of your morning routine. Right. And your Google Maps, your GPS is tracking it every day. But then let's say someone in your office comes down or you hear about an acquaintance that comes out with a stage four type of cancer. And you do a Google search on it because you're like, I'm interested in what that is. And now it's in your Google search history. Now, let's say during the next week, There's construction, and you can't go to that Starbucks on your way to work, so you go to another one. And that other one just so happens to be within a couple blocks' walk of a cancer treatment facility. Now, all of a sudden, the flags go up. This is ultimately sold and reported to third parties, and now your insurance company, who is purchasing reports on social media profiles for his clients, are now seeing that you was in proximity of a cancer treatment facility. Next thing you know, you're getting a notice that you're being dropped from coverage for pre-existing conditions or whatever general legal term they'll use to not, you know, to drop you. Mm-hmm. And that's a real, that's a potential plausible scenario that can happen to people. It's all because of information you're already saying, turn on the location tracking, share my posts. And that information is gonna be eventually used against you. And so we're not living in that world yet on a gen- general scale. But the thing is, is, what if you're that one in 10,000 people that happens to, mm-hmm. it's not a pleasant experience.
2: Yeah, 100%, because, you know, what you put out there on the internet, it lives there, you know, people, can, you know, especially if it's public, public information, you know, employers can look at certain things. And well, Terry, I, not you. to interrupt
1: you, everything you type in a Google search bar, even yeah. if you don't hit enter, even if you backspace it out, mm-hmm. every keystroke is recorded. Most websites are, s- are set this way too. Google, in particular, every keystroke is recorded. So a lot of people aren't aware of that they think, "Oh, how how to assassinate the president?" And also, no, no, I don't want to search that because I don't want the feds coming after me. Backspace. And no, they already know. So key, log- key logging is real. Key logging is
2: real. It truly is, and I think that we. Uh, we triggered uh, Jax's devices without going into names of who those devices are called. So- that was
0: hilarious. Yeah, I, that's why I had to go on mute and tell him to be quiet. <laughs> Thanks, Jim.
2: You're listening to me over here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sweet. But that we- just
0: shows how like, he was talking, and it heard, and it clicked on. It's a real thing. Yeah. And I, I, I- And I'm accepting a certain level of risk having them in my home. Like that's the other factor too, it's like what- The, the convenience, right? Cause yeah. it makes
1: life easier having yep. that digital assistant, right? But, and it's that trade-off, that risk negotiation that we made when we purchased that service or that device, or we leave it turned on, we're saying, you know what? What's the worst that's gonna happen? I'll just have to see a bunch of cat food ads today. Or if I'm looking at, you know, how to fix a sofa, I'm gonna get a bunch of sofa upholstery service ads. It's just part of the nature of what we decide to accept. But like I said, it's the the thing that's making sure that people are aware of these things because a lot of people they're not aware of that and 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 you know like the TikTok debacle, people are still not fully understanding why is the U.S. government against TikTok and the data collection it does, and that's the problem. Where I look at CISA, I look at uh, you know I look at these agencies that should be at the forefront of educating our public, at least for Americans, on what this means and doing it in a way that anyone can understand. And I know CISA does a great job. I want to give a shout out to CISA because they got some wonderful folks working for them. Their campaigns are phenomenal. But right now, we need CISA supporting those messages of why is TikTok not good for the American public? And they need to put that out there because the general public, TikTok swiping away and looking at all the content because it's, an, it's educational, it's informative, and it's a time killer. But they're not realizing what is the back end. And so again, uh, we definitely need more awareness campaigns for things like that when it affects privacy.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely not a political person, but there's you know there's a narrative that's out there that I truly believe that do, that does not reach the public in a way that it needs to, you know, because every every narrative tells a different story. And Jim, you hit on a great point right there. And I truly believe that if some of these organizations took charge and took a better role within leadership of educating people, I truly believe that it'll, it'll negate the the narrative of politics versus you know versus reality. Because oftentimes those messages can be skewed. And once again, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of politics. That's definitely not, not what I'm about. Um, but I think that there's something there. I think it, I think there are certain organizations that can take responsibility. And I want to shift into something here that is not only current, but it's going to be the future. And it's really a big disruptor. And that's artificial intelligence. And I truly believe that right now, artificial intelligence is really disrupting a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, that is out there, it really is. And here's what makes it scary. I'm gonna paint a picture for you and I wanna hear your thoughts on this right here. Imagine everything that you've ever done out on the internet that is captured by a bad actor. And that video, that audio, those things get captured and used against you. Picture this right here. We've got got video technology where you can get deep faked easily and all they need is really your face. Think about it. We've got artificial intelligence that's now taking your voice and creating context from that. And those two right there are dangerous. Those two things combined are dangerous, and people don't understand and realize the full effect of artificial intelligence and how it's going to absolutely play a role. There's going to be companies and organizations that are going to benefit from this. Look at LifeLock, for example. LifeLock, for example, anytime that you've been... um, You know, you've had your identity stolen, and that's exactly what I'm talking about, stolen identity, artificial intelligence, stealing your identity with deep fakes and voiceovers because they can capture this within their technology that can absolutely 100% not only steal your identity, but steal your identity and make bad things happen from That audio from that video and the other person on the other end would never know the difference unless they're fully aware of that. Let's dive into that. Jax, what are your thoughts about the picture that I just painted? Okay, terrifying.
0: Yeah, terrifying. And that goes back to when I, I mentioned earlier about having a question posed by one of my professors in my master's program about how our threatscape will look in the next three to five years. And that's really an unknown space because AI is emerging rapidly. We've got ChatGPT. We're seeing how powerful that tool is and how like useful that tool is, but you can literally have Chat GPT create a way to code malware if we wanted to and what's scary about that is we're starting to give a lot of our own human power over to the AI and if we're not careful AI could easily start coding in malicious code within the code that we're developing like it could it could be hacked that anything can be hacked so it could be hacked and then next thing you know now we have malicious AI and you brought up deep fakes deep fakes were already difficult to start to differentiate from the real from the what would what is deep fake. And I heard a, a very long podcast about this because of how advanced the technology has gotten and how adversaries are able to go in and manipulate these photos. It's starting to become extremely hard to differentiate is this a fake or not. And we're also seeing AI, another thing that's terrifying is that there's a way of using AI to make me look like somebody else when I'm in a zoom call. So I could be in a call right now. You guys think you're talking to Jax. You do, but you might be talking to some like male, white male named Gerald Osher for all of you, all, you know, cause I could have that capability and technology and you would not know any different as long as I didn't have And the technology isn't extremely advanced. So I know that if you move too quickly, it can kind of add some blurs, but it's still advanced enough that it has been proven within interviews, people have used this capability and have been successful and been able to have people get through a complete interview without an individual knowing. So it's really, really scary. Again, it's hard to answer that where we're going to be in the next three to five years, because it's a technology that we don't even fully grasp yet. But I truly, me personally, as a professional in this space, it is a little terrifying because I think that in the next three to five years, our entire understanding of like technology and the threatscape and how vulnerabilities are going to be leveraged are going to change drastically. And we're going to have to change the way that we think entirely to be effective against those adversaries and those vulnerabilities that we
2: face. Jax, thank you so much for sharing sharing your thoughts on that. Jim, over to you. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it is it is terrifying to agree. My favorite deep fake is the deep fake Tom Cruise in particular. I, I love those uh, on social media. Um, uh, but you know, I think that there's a couple of ways to address it. I mean, immediately I would say go old school. For example, third party authentication uh, is still pliable as far as uh, the fifth realm of um, multi-factor authentication could still be used. And they'll, I'm sure there'll be businesses and companies that'll make a solution for that, that they'll gladly sell and license to help with that. For example, think of it in terms like a, a public RSA key, right? where I would have on my jimwestauthor.com, if I'm doing a live stream somewhere, and someone's like, well, how do we know that's really Jim? I'd have it embedded in my Zoom call, the, the key for that session, and then people would be able to go to my site and validate it, and like, okay, this is legitimately him because he's the only one that can access that key. Now, you know, some solution like that would be probably the easiest to implement uh, with today's current technologies, but as far as propaganda, how the masses see information, right? Because, you know, People believe in conspiracy theories and UFOs and aliens and, 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 and people only read headlines, right? Mm-hmm. I recently experienced this with a social media post. I won't go into details of the post, but the post was to raise money for a, a, a nonprofit. People saw the image that was part of the website of the nonprofit and thought that it was a, a different issue than what the message says. So no one read the content of the message. They saw the image, the associated nonprofit And the purpose of the post was completely over overran by people, you know, wishing well and and et cetera, et cetera, the the main part of what the post was doing. This is goes right into where people read a headline and that's all they're going to take from that article. They won't read an article. They won't check the sources. So when people talk about fake news, it's a real condition because people, you know, largely people are, are naive and don't do their thorough research and read. Um, beyond the headlines. So I think in the world of AI, where articles can be written, speeches, uh, the the deep fakes all combined, it will be dangerous to a degree, but we're gonna have to, for the people that are your legitimate voices in industry and in different uh, politics, et cetera, we'll have to adopt a solution. And it could be as simple as, you know, when there's a hostage taken, you want a proof of life, they hold up the newspaper with today's date. It could be as something as simple as that, where you know a senator's like, all right, well, start my speech off. Here's today's newspaper. So you know this is not a deep fake. But then again, deep fakes could do the same thing, right? So I think that eventually there'll be some kind of authentication for the individual authentication app that you would use that can be public, publicly tied to your public presence or your Twitter or whatever social media says, I'm going live. My authentication ID is this. And that I think through authentication. Now coming into our real world outside of the digital world is going to be where that gets solved.
2: Yeah. So what is the biggest threat facing us within the next five to 10 years? Is it is it uh, artificial intelligence or is there something else that we should be on the lookout for?
0: I like to always post quantum computing. Um, I haven't like there, I've done a lot of research in this space, but there's still not a lot of data out there on the quantum computing space on how it actually is going to impact impact public key encryption, which is one of our primary encryption methods that we use, especially within the federal space. And it is explained that quantum encryption quantum computing will be able to crack public key encryption within milliseconds, like just immediately. So it's understanding that threatscape, it's already being developed and there's the forefront of quantum computers are out there, but they're in kind of a testing environment. I think that we're gonna see them first within the medical space for precision medicine using big data, which is also very scary because, If that data is manipulated incorrectly, it could cause major harm to the patients that might be utilizing precision medicine to help them with their overall medical provided medical services. But we don't know. NIST has developed some post-quantum encryptions and they, I think there's, three or four. I think the fourth one is for specific, uh, national security systems, but we don't know for sure if they're going to actually work. We propose they work and we hope the math works, but we're not going to know until one of those systems, one of those quantum computers actually go in, and crack public key encryption. So I'm really big. I'm a kind of a nerd in that space. I'd like to see how it's going to shift and change, but we don't know what we don't know right now. It's still kind of emerging.
2: Jim, same question. What is AI the biggest threat in the next five to ten years, or do you feel that something else is?
1: Um, I believe it's not just quantum computing; it's a quantum supercomputer. Um, so I'm very careful when I speak on this. Um, I'm actually connected with a couple of researchers in this field, so I'll choose my words carefully. the The threat of a quantum supercomputer is what the precursor of a cyber 911 would entail. Okay. Um, PKI, Jack's brought up a good thing. PKI has several fundamental flaws in its um, implementation, if you will, that would be really easy for a very sophisticated uh, quantum supercomputer to render useless. Um, I've done a, I've done a public um, speech on this at several conferences called the Real Threat of Quantum Computing. And in it, I, I, I basically assert that CSFC, commercial solutions were classified will be the only type of program that's available today for businesses to start at least moving towards. Um, every layer of encryption you put forth between your crown jewels of data and the attacker give buys you time. And in a CSSC implementation, anything that's not pre-authorized by certificates is treated as an incident. Now, granted, in a case of a quantum supercomputer, you will see incidents light, light up a tree, if you will like a Christmas tree, um, but at least by enough time, if you make the decision to shut down your network or shut down your data servers or shut down the main feed into your data center. Um, the problem is, as these things happen at wire speed and you know most incident response programs happen at human speeds such as one hour, four hours, 24 hours. And that's the problem. We can't keep up with the pace of near wire speed. And again, you could put so much security and so many rules in your firewalls and IPSs and IDSs that you actually render operations at risk of being, you know, uh, false positive. Um, at the end of the day, uh, yes, AI blended with a quantum supercomputer would be uh, potentially dangerous. And again, at what point does AI systems start replicating themselves and start becoming a sentient? Would be the, now that's more of the doomsdayish scenario. Um, you know, we could talk about Isomaz robotic rules and so forth, but uh, not to go down those rabbit holes to answer the question, I believe a quantum supercomputer is the precursor of a cyber 9 eleven uh, or a global cyber threat. And I don't but I don't believe we're going to be in that window of time for at least another eight to thirteen years.
2: Yeah, great great point, Jim. look here here's the thing. There are so many things to consider and and all of all of the topics that we covered here today, you know, it's definitely some things that I think individuals, teams, companies, you know, whatever label need to really think about. So what advice do you have for those individuals or organizations looking to improve their cybersecurity posture? Cause there's lots of things, you know, lots of ways that we should look at it, things to consider all these different policies, procedures, plans, risk mitigation, all of this stuff, patching things that we all talked about here today. If individuals or organizations are really looking to improve their cybersecurity posture, what would be your best piece of advice?
0: I'm going to go back to something that Jim has said multiple times is go and review your basics, make sure that you're doing the basics and you're doing them well. That is the first thing that doesn't take extra money that takes having a good, uh, CISO, for example, or good. If you don't have a CISO, a good it cyber team to be able to look. How is your organization? How well is your organization executing the basics? Do you have MFA in place? Do you have password managers in place? Are you doing good password management? What does that look like? Do you have a risk register? Are you managing risk? Where are your crown jewels? Like, And that's, I think, probably one of the key things, if I could give any advice right now, is making sure you know exactly where your most valuable assets are, your crown jewels, and how are you protecting those? Because the crown jewels, if those are impacted, if those are destroyed, it would destroy the organization. So the basics, understanding crown jewels and protecting those. So summarizing that as short short as I can. (laughs) Uh,
2: Jim, over to you.
1: You know, um the absolutely hundred ten percent concur with Jax on that. You gotta you gotta get the basics down first, get your foundation, and then you could build a house, right? And um, But, you know, that's what we were talking about, the XYZ company, like on a test, is this XYZ ABC company or a Fortune 500 company? But for a moment, I just want to kind of switch switch lateral for a minute over to the small business owner and speak to them for a moment. If We have a small, like a mom and pop shop to a, a zero to 10 person small business working out of a temp office somewhere, or office shared space. You know, they're thinking, well, how do we do security? Because we don't have security teams. We don't have incident handlers. We don't have a, a CISO and a CIO and all these roles yet We don't have the budget for it. And I would advise them, And you know, there are some basics that you could do, like encrypting your traffic via a solid VPN tool is something that most people had to learn during COVID anyway using VPN. Uh, I would recommend tier zero as a pretty good one. It's low cost and it's pretty secure. Look into, you know, virtualized SOC services. As a small business, there's a lot of them out there. There's probably several in your local city and town that are looking for the business and and have good, talented people. So instead of having someone 100% full-time on-prem, on your business location, you can have someone that is a, a virtual sock or a sock that's located near you that is doing some you know maybe level one monitoring and some uh, you know filtering especially of, you know, of your traffic providing some vulnerability reports but let's say you're the mom and pop shop and you can't even afford that I would then you know, implore to the small business owner that's a sole proprietor is go on like try hack me or hack the box. Uh, there's so many of these sites that can start educating yourself of how easy it is to compromise a box. And by virtue of getting a little bit of like what I would call level one to 20 knowledge, within level one to 20, you're gonna arm yourself enough with the information. Like now I know what I need to do to protect what's important to me. And whether that ends up being an encryption solution, a, a strong VPN solution or something else, again, I think education, educating yourself as a business owner, your small team in a small business, it starts there. And maybe finding some low cost and no cost tools or open source tools that are actually effective and and vouched for by industry professionals. I think that's the key because again, not everybody has security budgets and can afford firewalls and IDSs, IPSs, like the businesses we often work with. But yeah, that's my message for the small business owner.
2: I love that, Jim. Jax, thank you so much for your time here today. Truly valuable tips, tools, techniques, and resources. Man, I'm telling you, the future is in good hands with level 99 top cyber pros like we have here today. So if there's one final piece of advice, Jax, over to you first. If there's any one final piece of advice that you would love to give anybody out there listening here today, what would that one piece of advice be?
0: Basics. Well, I'll reiterate that basics are critical within your organization. And there's a ton of, there's a ton of assets and, and resources out there. Research, get to know Get to know what's available, but go stick with the basics and make sure that you're educating your personnel on why it's important to stay secure because you're only as strong as your weakest link. You're only as strong as your first line user. That's the most critical thing. Get them educated and you're naturally going to become more secure. And Terry, thank you again. And Jim, thank you again for having me.
2: Jax, you are absolutely welcome. So what is the best way for someone to get connected with the the resources and uh, products and services that you have?
0: easiest way is just to find me on LinkedIn or even on YouTube. LinkedIn, J-A-X-S. Pretty easy if you can just type in J-A-X. And then I'm pretty much everywhere with my company Outpost Gray and that's G-R-A-Y. YouTube. I love YouTube. I'm on there. I try to put content out weekly and I do shorts probably a couple of times a week. So reach out to me, ask me any questions that you have. If I don't have the answer, I guarantee it. I'll know somebody in the network that I can connect you with.
2: I love it, Jax. Thank you so much. Jim, over to you. What are your final thoughts here today?
1: Yeah, my final thoughts is that information is everywhere. The internet's a beautiful thing that are that's in our lives that has, you know, between YouTube and you know, so many security blogs and and you know, social media influencers and you know, folks like Jax on LinkedIn and Outpost Gray, you know. We have all these professionals out there, and I think that executives that you know needs we need to connect with each other. We need to share our ideas, share our perspectives, because you know just because I'm level 99, I have certain high-level perspectives, but then I might be lacking and having some gaps in my knowledge base, and that's where Jacks can fill with her experiences and her uh, you know career challenges. She faced, she brings that expertise in, and as a collective, if we all come together and share this and 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 build upon this. That's what executives out there. If you're a CISO, CSO, a CTO, you should be connecting, connect with myself, connect with Jax, connect with other professionals. You know, we're not in this uh, knowledge is power concept. Knowledge is empowering. And so I consider myself a perpetual student. Anyone out there listening to this, I challenge you to be a perpetual student. Always be reading, always be studying, always be growing.
2: I love that, Jim Jax. Thank you so much for your time here today, man. We uncovered some absolutely amazing content about the future of education, cybersecurity, the future of it, AI, so many different things. But I'm here to tell you that knowledge is potential power. It truly is. Knowledge is potential power, and it's a matter of how you use that. You know, we all have knowledge, we all have skills, but the number one thing that separates each and every one of us is our experience. And we got to experience two level 99 top cyber pros here today. So here, here's my challenge to you, educate yourself, train yourself, coach yourself, take an interest in your own self-education because anything is possible the moment that you believe that you're possible and it starts right there within your mind because everything that we say, everything that we do begins right here within your mind. When you strengthen your mind, you will strengthen everything else, to include cybersecurity. So strengthen your mind right there. Go out there, take action every single day. And if you want to get connected with more of what we're doing here, get connected to us at topcyberpro.com. That's right, topcyberpro.com. We have tips, tools, techniques, and resources that will help you take your cybersecurity to the next level. My name is Terry Thompson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.